feedback. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible, you could take it out and, and go back to Acts chapter 10. Merry Christmas. Uh, I think it's okay to say that, isn't it? Did the license, did the license run out a few days ago? Everybody's, uh, everybody's very quick to sort of just put all of the Christmas stuff away, right? Anyone want to confess that they're, they're still rocking a Pandora Christmas station? Anyone? No one? Yes, a few. I know there's, uh, there's a few who just don't want to let it go. Uh, we're grateful. Hopefully you had a wonderful time the last uh, week with family and friends. I uh, really enjoyed the candlelight service that we had uh, at church on Christmas Eve. It was great. I was standing room only. Um, really was, uh, was blessed to have everyone around. My in-laws were in town, and they're just a complete, uh, complete and utter joy to have around. And I know that uh, a lot of people would say that with a bit of sort of sarcasm in their voice, right? But I really honestly mean it. I feel like, um, I feel like I'm sort of cheating life, right? Your, your in-laws are supposed to be trouble, right? It's supposed to be sort of like, oh, you know, in-laws, but mine are just amazing. And so I don't know what happened, um, but I'm grateful they were here. And uh, Sarah and the kids went with them to Louisiana uh, a couple of days ago, and then I'm going to jump in the car today and go and join them. And so I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm excited. But before that, I couldn't be more, more honored and more privileged to, to teach the Bible. We're going to be in the beginning of Acts chapter 10. If you remember, we took a few weeks off for Advent season. And we looked at Luke chapter 1 for a couple of weeks, considering what it meant, the mystery that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And that is a mystery indeed. So we took some time to look at that from Luke chapter 1, and now we're jumping back into the book of Acts. We're trying to do our best to, to walk through it. Uh, we have titled this sermon series, Unconquered. And what we see is that Jesus' work was not in vain. His life, his perfect life, his death and his resurrection brings about the fruit of the gospel going forward, the church being planted and multiplied really all throughout the earth. So we have just come through the conversion of Saul, who's going to take center place in the book of Acts going forward. And now we come back here at the first part of Acts chapter 10, to the story of Cornelius and our old friend Peter. Peter has sort of taken a back, a back seat the last couple of chapters, and we're going to go back to him for a very significant reason, and we're going to find out where God is leading us here as we read. So I'm going to start in the first verse. I'm going to go up through verse 33. This is the Word of God to us. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. 
And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. And this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your, arm, your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Let's pray. Father, would it be that we are all here in the presence of God gathered to hear what you have commanded? We desire to be like these eager men, these eager friends and relatives of Cornelius who gathered to know what your message was, to gather to hear your word. They were devout. They were God-fearing. And I pray that your spirit would make that so in us. God, we need help. We need eyes to see. We need ears to hear. We need you to give us understanding of your word. So I pray that you would deliver us from just academic exercise, from just the reading of, of words, and you would help us to see you clearly. How do we want to be made clean? We want to be alive and right before you. And we pray that you would use your word and our understanding of your word to make, to make that real to us. We know the danger of these moments to go through the motions, 
We know how, how holy a thing it is to be in your presence, to sit under your word with your people. And it's tempting to think of it as common and regular. And so God, help us. Keep us from falsehood. Keep us from pride. We come under your word to learn and to listen. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. The next two weeks, uh, we are going to be unfolding this mystery of the Gentile inclusion in the promises of the gospel. Now, many of you have been following along. We have Acts little study guide booklets, and I'm sure that toward the end of the, the year, you were just so enthralled in those that you've been panicked. It's been hard to sleep the last number of weeks thinking, but the booklet's done. Where are we going? And I just wanted to make a short little announcement to, to mention that in, we decided to slow down in some measure the pace of our preaching through Acts. We got to a couple sections and we said, boy, the, the themes here... What God is instructing here is pretty big, it's pretty massive, and we want to make sure that we don't skate through it. So what happened is, is the booklets that we printed have up to chapter 11, verse 18, and we're actually going to take the next two weeks to get through that section, and you'll have a new booklet, a shiny new booklet, and about mid-January. And so that's the promise. I just wanted to, to make sure that was known there. Uh, but for the next couple of weeks, we are going to look at this one question How are the Gentiles included in the promises of Jesus Christ? And I know that in order to unpack this, there's so many things that we need to explain and think about and understand, not the least of which is what in the world is a Gentile, right? Like, no one uses this phrase anymore. On the list of Bible-only, if you want to sound word or sound weird phrases, you might just talk about Gentiles and, and Jewish people, right? And this doesn't make any sense. So we want to unfold this particular ministry, and we're going to take a couple of weeks to do it. And this is a mystery according to, to Peter. This is a mystery according to the first century. This is a mystery according to Paul. Of all the moments of mystery in the gospel, and there's a lot, of all the moments of sort of surprise, of what is God doing, these, whoa, I wouldn't have planned that kind of announcements, this one seems to be the capstone, at least in this section, uh, this section of, of understanding for Jewish people, this was the most unbelievable. I don't know if many of you, anyone Apple fans? You guys Apple fans? Apple products? There's probably a ton of Apple products in our house. Uh, in 2011, I had zero Apple products, and I, I resigned my job and prepared to go to seminary. And within one month, I switched from a BlackBerry to an iPhone. I was given an iPad and I, got a brand, and I got a MacBook Air computer to go to seminary. And at one point, I was packing up my things, and I looked down, and I thought, like, how did this happen? I felt like I needed to go to, like, AA, like Apple, Apple's a not, something like that. Well, one of my favorite things about Apple is the way that they unveil products. This is one of the legacies of Steve Jobs. There's, he was a genius in a lot of ways, a design genius. He was a forward thinker. But I would say that his, the biggest impact that he had for that company was the way that he would design products in secrecy and then host these big events. Is anyone so nerdy that they follow those events like online and like read what the nerds are writing about it, right? One of the things that he was known for, you can go on and find YouTube videos, is near the end of his speeches, everyone was always waiting for this big reveal, this big announcement, and he would pretend like he was done, right? And then he would lift his finger, and does anyone know what he'd say? Oh, one, one more thing. Oh, and there's one more thing. There's actually compilations on the internet, people splicing together videos over the course of 10 years 
of him going through a myriad of announcements and then walking off stage, the clapping, and then stopping and saying, oh, and one more thing. And then it's like, boom, iPod, right? Or iPhone pops up on the screen. This is that kind of moment where we're at in, in Acts. We've, we're beginning to understand the impact that Jesus had in taking away sins But this is the capstone of sort of one more thing. This mystery is going to unfold and cover the globe, all kinds of people. Listen to how Paul describes that part of the mystery in Ephesians. This is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. The mystery, he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul wrote this down to his readers and his listeners because it was so profound. This is one more thing. Oh yeah, one more thing. Jesus and the forgiveness possible through Him, it's going to go to everyone, not just God's chosen nation, Israel. When we say Gentiles, we mean that all of those people who are not either ethnically or by conversion of the Jewish nation. Okay, So this is all of the people who throughout this time would have been considered and called dogs those people who had pagan rituals, those people who had worshiping in the high places all throughout the Old Testament, these are the people who unthinkably to a Jew are going to be included because of what Jesus accomplished. And Paul says this is a mystery. In other words, no one could see this coming. That's at least what the feel is in this particular text. This is a massive shift. And I want to note something right off the bat. Next week, Pastor Josh is going to talk through The fact that God has always had a heart for the nations and we ought to have a heart for the nations as well. The way that we embody and live out the gospel ought to include people who are not like us because that is what God is like. And I want to make a comment right up front that this shift, this mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles was not a fundamental shift in the nature of God It is a fundamental mind shift for the Jewish people who had become proud of their heritage and believed that they had earned something by being special. So this is not God saying to himself, you know what? Hey, Jesus, what if we included the pagan dogs? What if we did? That would blow their minds. God has always had a plan for the nation's and this is his unveiling of that plan. So the shift that needed to take place was in the minds and hearts of the prejudiced Jews. That's where the shift that is taking place. It's such a big deal that Paul actually takes up the bulk of three chapters in his greatest theological work, Romans 9 through 11. He takes up three whole chapters just commenting on and wrestling with and at times being speechless over how this is going to take place to describe how the interaction of Jewish people and Gentiles being included, what is God doing, how is this going to work, He uses words like ingrafting, which is apparently a concept. I'm not very good. I don't have a very green thumb, but apparently that's a, you ready for this word? Arboricultural term. Arboricultural. Did I make that up? Arboriculture? Arbor? I think that's the word. I looked up to try to figure out what it means when you like work with plants and try to make apples come out of a lemon tree, that kind of stuff. And uh, that's what it would have seemed like to them. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 9, 10, and 11, is that God, through the miracle of the gospel, is taking what seemed to them like apple trees, and he's creating apple fruit out of a lemon tree. That's the kind of, like, whoa, what is God up to moment that the Jewish people are encountering. And I don't think we understand how big a deal this is. 
Gentile is not on your passport. You do not think of yourselves as outside of the grace of God. We have an entitlement sort of mentality when it comes to, it comes to inclusion in the gospel, but this was not known. It wasn't known even to those who were outside of the Jewish nation. This is what John Stott says about our difficulty with understanding this divide. He says it is dif- difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf which yawned. I love that word. Apparently yawned, you know, you open your mouth. Apparently British people use that word to just mean opened. Oh, so I'm going to start using that. So anyway, which yawned in those days between the Jews on one hand and the Gentiles on the other. Not that the Old Testament countenanced such a divide. It affirmed that God had a purpose for the Gentiles. By choosing and blessing the Jews, he intended to bless all the families of the earth. That's Genesis 12. You could read that. The tragedy was that Israel twisted this doctrine of election into one of favoritism, became filled with racial pride and hatred, despised the Gentiles as dogs, and developed traditions that kept them apart. No Orthodox Jew would ever enter the home of a Gentile, and all familiar intercourse with Gentiles was forbidden. So this fact that Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection impacted the Gentiles and included them was a mystery. Now, I don't know if I can say it's the most magnificent of the mysteries of the gospel. I mean, there's a lot of mysteries in the gospel, right? That's like saying, like, compare your children and tell me which one you love best, right? That's kind of, that's kind of if I said it's the most magnificent. I mean, all of the gospel is a stunning, unbelievable turn of events that only God can accomplish. How will a virgin give birth? Is this not the mystery of the gospel? How will the perfect righteousness of Jesus be substituted for our imperfect unrighteousness? How in the world will God be both just and the justifier of the ungodly? That's what Romans 5 wrestles with. How can God be a just judge and yet in His love also bring into heaven those who are completely unworthy? These are all mysteries. How will Jesus overcome the grave itself, right? You don't think it's a mystery when his disciples are walking around all somber and like stone-faced on the road to Emmaus. And they say, like, haven't you heard? He's dead. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know what God's going to do at this point. These are all mysteries. The resurrection is a mystery. It says so much that the gospel is a mystery that in 1 Peter it says that there are, there are parts of this that angels even long to look into. God didn't even let the angels in on the plan. They didn't know it. I like to imagine the angels having like talk forums and clubs to describe the gospel. If anyone was into a a real, like a TV show like Lost, there were times when I would walk in on conversations between my friends and they were uncovering minor details of promotional materials for season six of Lost as though they had been contacted by Sherlock Holmes himself. They were, they were creating alternate narratives and saying, I think it's blue because there was blue in the temple and it was this. Anyone ever been there? These are mysteries and no one knows. Any good mystery elicits from us, I, I want to know what that is. And First Peter tells us that these things, how would the Gentiles be included, were such a mystery that the angels in heaven, I can imagine them sitting around, lounging on clouds and saying like, What's your greatest conspiracy theory? How is God going to do this? It's a mystery for sure. So to introduce this concept of the gospel going out to all the earth, Luke has been slowly showing us both geographic and a demographic expansion of the church. Do you remember Luke 1.8? 
It says, you'll be my witnesses, right, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. So up to this point in Acts, we have been seeing hints of this. And because we know the end of the story, we've looked back and we've said, oh yeah, right here, see, look at that. Look at that. When you know the guy's dead the whole movie and you go back and you watch, then you're like, oh, look, right? You know the end. But in this particular case, it's been very sort of subtle. We've seen that evangelism is taking place to the north and to the west, up through Samaria, all throughout Judea. We've seen in Acts chapter 8 that evangelism took place in conversion with an Ethiopian eunuch who we recall, remember, came from Ethiopia, was considered to be the ends of the earth, even in secular Greek literature for hundreds of years. Homer had called Ethiopia the end of the earth. So there's been these little subtle hints, and now this concept of the gospel expanding is going to just be like doors just going to be kicked down. It's going to be made explicit. All of the hints. This is now completely unveiled. The naked mystery of the gospel is being told here. And this is where it begins. We started the hint of this, that Peter himself even was headed in this direction at the end of chapter 9. Look back at verse 43 at the end of chapter 9 you'll see that he stays in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now, a couple of things. Joppa, in and of itself, is a little bit outside of the bounds of where a good Jewish Orthodox person, especially one of religious influence, would have stayed. It's just a little bit out of the bounds, but it's in Judea, and it's still like an okay place. The key there is the fact that he stayed with Simon, a tanner, right? Now, I want to make it clear. Did you notice how many times that Luke takes great pains to describe this guy as Simon, comma, a tanner. Now, how many times, do you introduce yourself and do you just say your profession all the time? Hi, I'm Lance, comma, a preacher, right? Like, in fact, I try as hard as I can to, pot, to keep that from people. I don't know if you knew that. Like, uh, I've never had more amazing conversations completely go terrible the moment I mention that I work for a church. So anyway, that's my, that's my whining rant for the day. So Simon, a tanner, right? It says it at the end of 943. Look at 10, chapter 10, verse 6. He's lodging with one Simon, comma, a tanner. Then when they relay the story later in 1032, we see Luke taking great pains again. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, right? Again, over and over again. Now, at first glance, you might think to yourselves, well, they had to distinguish him because there's too many Simons. It's like when you're in elementary school and there's too many Sarahs in your class. And it's like, well, which one do you mean? Sarah B or Sarah O or Sarah L, right? Or maybe he had a nickname instead, Sasa and Sarah O, right? It's not that there's just too many Simons because Peter was Simon. Did no one else have that problem? No one else had classes with too many of the same kid and you had to like no one? Yeah, I mean, come on, right? We are not creative with names. And so there's two, there wasn't that there's just too many of them, though there are. It's Simon Peter. He finds a guy, Simon. The interesting part about it was that a tanner was the kind of job that a Jewish person would have had nothing to do with. It was the kind of bloody touching of dead things and skins of animals that were not clean. It was the kind of job that would have been anathema to a Jew specifically one who was trying to make inroads with Orthodox Jewish people and wanted to tell them this is God's plan for your life. And so there's this subtle hint that Peter is being opened up to the reality of the gospel going to all kinds of people because he's staying in Joppa with, of all people, 
a tanner. And now, against that backdrop, we're introduced to a brand new character, this guy named Cornelius. A couple things about Cornelius. Cornelius was, by all accounts, a Gentile. He was, according to our text, a centurion, which is an amazing name. Like, if you had to have a name, I'd rather be Cornelius the centurion than Simon the tanner, I think, if I had to choose, right? Like, choose your own adventure, that's what I want to be. Cornelius was a leader of a Roman force, like the Roman army. He was a leader of a hundred men. So a century was how they organized themselves at the smallest level, a hundred men in an army. And the guy who was like the rugged, responsible, seasoned soldier who oversaw all of those hundred men was the centurion. You've seen this term all throughout Scripture. In fact, there's moments when a centurion comes to Jesus, asks him to heal his daughter and says, I am... You are one who understands authority, I think is how it goes. Remember this? The idea is is that the centurion is in a line of hierarchy in the army, and he says, basically, if you give a command, it'll happen. That's the idea. And Cornelius is one of those guys. If you are a complete, like, gladiator, Roman guard, Praetorian guard, not uh, nerd, then this may help. A century was 100 people. Then there was this thing called a cohort. It says that he was in the Italian cohort, and that is six centuries. So there's 600 men in a cohort. And then there was this thing called a legion that would have had 10 of those. So about 6,000 guys would have been a Roman legion. I looked this up and I got, have you ever gotten lost on like Wikipedia? And no one else has ever done that, right? It's just like, how did I click through these links and where did I go? I got really lost. And apparently at the height of the Roman empire, there was between 25 and 30 legions so groups of 6,000 fighting men, and that's how they took over, like, the whole world, basically, right? Can you imagine, like, a risk board, and you just have legions everywhere, and it's just about that time where you're just getting really confident, and you're, like, lean back, rolling with one hand like this, like, you just know it's over, right? That's how Rome was with these legions, and Cornelius was a guy who was sort of respected and responsible within that system of the army, right? So he's a leader. Luke take great, takes great pains to describe his spirituality. He was a devout man. In other words, he was sincere in his faith. The phrase here, who feared God, was not a minor phrase. In fact, in the Old Testament, if you look, the, the definition of someone who was in, who was in the camp, who was accepted by God, you might have just described them as one who feared God. This is, a, this is a very high compliment that Luke is paying to Cornelius. He is not only a devout man, he is one who feared God with all of his household, and he gave alms generously to the poor and prayed continually to God. He was doing his best to fulfill the requirements of a Jewish person. Although we're meant to believe that at least in some measure he's not fully accepted by the Jewish people. Chapter 11, verse 3, is going to indicate that for all of Cornelius' devoutness, he has not been circumcised, and so therefore he would have not been considered legit by the Jewish people who said, no, you need to be in or you're out, and you, Cornelius, are out. He's introduced as an example of the kind of person that Peter is going to come face to face with and say, God has called you clean. God has called you clean clean. So he's given a vision to find Peter. There's a lot of ceremonial kind of language in here. The fact that his prayer ascended as a memorial before God 
is language that gives us a picture of ceremonial law, of the kind of things that God put into place to make someone clean. We can tell that Cornelius was probably looked down upon. You can see hints of the kind of prejudice that happens when he sends his men. Remember, he had a hundred men underneath him. It says that he takes a couple people and one of his soldiers. So he goes down, and like the guy that we bought our house from, he's a small business owner, and he had his, he had his, his guys like take all their stuff out of the house. They were like working in the lawn. It was like he had his business guys, and then he said, oh, I have this other thing for you to do. Cornelius says to his soldier, I have this thing for you to do. And he goes, and do you know what they say to Peter about him in order to convince him to come? He says, this man is a God-fearing man, in verse 22, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. Now, why do you think they include that detail? They include that detail because innately they knew that Peter would have been predisposed to not want to have anything to do with Cornelius. No, no, really, Peter, it's okay. I, I know he's a Gentile. I know he's not really in. I know he's not one of you. But you should come anyway. Come to his house. It's okay. He's well thought of by the Jewish people there. The Jewish people, you won't get in trouble if you go to this guy's house, right? You don't include a detail like that unless you're aware, oh wait, this could, be a, this could be a problem. It's like a kid coming to his brother and saying, hey, come with me up to the treehouse. It's going to be awesome. We're going to go through the ravine and then we're going to go up. And he's a little bit hesitant, like, we're not supposed to go in the ravine. That's off limits. We can't go in the treehouse right now. And what does the kid say? Oh, no, 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 no. It's well thought of by mom, Right? It's well thought of. It's well spoken of by mom. She says it's okay. You can see the kind of prejudice that Peter is dealing with and that all the people knew. It wasn't just the Jewish people who knew this. The Gentiles knew it as well. Cornelius would have felt the fact that he was on the outside looking in. And then, of course, we have Peter. Peter is given a particularly odd vision. Cornelius, in comparison, has a pretty normal vision. An angel comes to him and just says, go find this Peter guy. On the contrary, we're reintroduced to Peter, who's been sort of absent for the last two or three chapters. And Peter's given a weird vision of animals on a white sheet, right? All kinds of different animals, it says, and reptiles and birds of the air. And he's hungry, so it seems like a normal thing. If he's hungry, right, for a voice to come to him and say, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Except Peter has an interesting response. Peter has a sort of surprising response, especially for us who are a couple thousand years removed and don't think anything of going and eating sushi and shellfish and all kinds of things, right? He gives a kind of odd response. He says, he says, by no means, like, God, is this a test? Is this a trick? By no means, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And I think that we have now just hit the absolute, the sort of key that unlocks this first part. The next two weeks when we look at this, the, there's going to be a couple of things we focus on. And for, for this week specifically, we want to get at this concept. What does it mean for something to be clean? What does it mean for something to be unclean or common? And then for something to be clean, because Peter clearly has a major problem with this, and he has categories for things that maybe we don't even understand. And the question that God wants to press in Peter, the thing that he wants him to deal with, is this main question, how is one made clean before God? How is one made clean? That's the question that's being asked, and Peter is going to be forced to wrestle with it. 
Now, I, I don't know if I have to tell you this or not. This is, uh, should be obvious. But the question, how can one be pure before God? How can one be clean before God? is not a minor question. This is not Burger King or McDonald's. This is not large or medium. This is a question of eternal significance. In fact, if we knew who God was, if we saw him just a little bit more clearly, then this question would become a lot more urgent for us. How can I be pure and clean before God? You know that there is a kind of holiness, right? There is a holiness, after all, without which you will not see God. If you stand before God and you are clothed in anything but the perfect righteousness of Jesus, you will be cast away from his presence. He will say, I did not know you. Be gone. Eternal separation from God is what happens if you get the question wrong. How can I be clean before God? This is a massive question. Especially for a first century Jewish person, person, the question was hugely significant. It meant holy or unholy. And because it meant holy or unholy, it meant accepted or rejected. It meant accepted or rejected before God. That's how big of a question this was. We're going to take a little bit of an Old Testament history lesson. And if you ever read a, a, a textbook on like how to bless your church, reading from Leviticus is not in there. But we're going there because I want us to understand the significance of this question. How is one made clean? I want us to consider the fact, you know, that Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, which are the major law books of the Old Testament, they're the major law books of the Old Testament. They are full of references to being unclean. You will find more references to being unclean than you will to being unholy. This is the way that God defined acceptance before him, is to be clean. In fact, 67 times, just in those three books, 67 times something is delineated as unclean. You did not have to be the best Jewish kid in Talmud school or Torah school, right, to understand this is a big deal. This is a massive deal. I want to show you an example of specifically what Peter would have been wrestling with when he's in a trance and he's praying at the sixth hour and it says, rise, kill, and eat. This is what he would have been wrestling with. His entire life he'd heard things like this. Leviticus chapter 11. This is starting in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whoever, whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat, Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. Some of you are thinking, like, I'm okay so far. (laughs) Like, nobody had had camel truffles for uh, Christmas. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. God made this so clear. He was very concerned with Israel being being clean. 
And the Jewish people were very concerned with being clean, clean as well because there were strict penalties for becoming unclean. Strict penalties. And this makes sense, right? Things that are really important. If something's really important, if someone transgresses that law, you make a strict penalty for it. Is that, that's, that's the way things work. If you want to enforce something, if something is important, you give a strict penalty. And this is an eternally significant thing, so there were strict penalties. When there's not a strict penalty, people just, just ignore it. In fact, I read a fun article about North Dakota the other day. I think it was in the New York Times. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we were in the New York Times. And uh, they were talking about how people, like, basically just speed through the state with just reckless regard because the penalties for speeding are so ridiculously low that it's just like it doesn't even matter. Getting caught is no big deal. And as I was reading the story, I started to sort of smile because I remember the, I have one speeding ticket in my whole life. And I remember the ticket. I was back from, I'd just gotten back from doing, um, doing sort of like Bible school missionary kind of stuff. And I just got back. I borrowed my sister's car and I was driving in to go play basketball with some friends. And I was in a construction zone and I got pulled over for going 16 miles an hour over in a construction zone. I was terrified. I didn't know what to do. Oh man, right? The guy writes me a ticket. He hands it to me. I look at it. $21. $21, 16 over in a construction zone. And so this article was saying that the penalties are not strict enough. In other words, the consequence for becoming unclean in the speeding zone are not enough. And they were trying to figure out what do we do with this. And this is not the way with being unclean according to God. Look at Numbers chapter 5. These are the penalties for being unclean. In Numbers chapter 5, we see this. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. If you were unclean, you were completely rejected by your people. Moses' wife herself underwent the penalty for a time of becoming unclean and being rejected. They were sent out of your community. You were outside the camp. And that, of course, was not a small thing. It meant that you had completely been removed from access to the presence of God. The camp, you just said it in verse 3 of Numbers 5, is where God dwelt. So the Jewish people took these laws extremely seriously. This was a major and a massive things. It became so serious that for hundreds of years, Jewish leaders, rabbis, created an entire separate set of laws to keep people away from potentially becoming unclean. If the law said you'll become unclean if you come within one foot of a dead person, right, then the rabbis would say you need to stay 10 feet away. If you would become unclean or if you would transgress the law by walking 50 steps on the Sabbath, they would say you don't walk any steps. This was serious because to be put outside the camp meant that you were rejected of God and had no access to his presence. Now, I want to make a couple of comments here about what seems to be this sort of arbitrary ridiculousness of some of these laws, right? 
Have any of you read through Leviticus and thought to yourself like, what? Why? When? But bacon, God. (laughs) But bacon, right? Like, what? And I think that there's an apologetic question here beyond just us saying like, this seems arbitrary. There's an apologetics question because how many of us have not encountered, right? Have you not encountered someone saying like, oh, the Bible, that's ridiculous. Oh, so you think... You think that same-sex marriage is not a good idea. Oh, well, I see you wearing mixed fabric on your clothes. Right? Oh, I saw you eating some lobster and some crab. I guess you can just eat shellfish, right? No big deal. Have you not heard these arguments? This is a very real challenge that we need to meet and wrestle with when we read things like what we just read. Camel, no. Cow, yes. Pig, no. Sheep, yes. Right? As I was thinking through how to respond to something like this, my Pastor Josh, uh, as a good friend to me, reminded me of a, a quote uh, that we heard at a conference that we were at a year ago that was good. And uh, this, this pastor was uh, describing an interaction he had with someone who said how ridiculous it was, how absurd and foolish it was that they believed that God had commanded his people not to eat shellfish. And he said, listen, I will fully admit to you that for a time, God commanded people, commanded humans, do not eat shellfish. So long as you admit that you believe at a time humans were shellfish. <laughs> right? right? And I think, this, I think that's an okay way to say, but maybe don't lead with that sort of sardonic kind of like, <laughs> like cutting. Right? But let's, let's understand at the start that this conversation of us saying like God commanded these kind of things is not so absurd when you realize that questions about the origin of the universe and these sort of things will, will inevitably have a mysterious, profound, head-scratching answer and they cannot provide one that's better, right? But let me give you a couple of ways to answer this thing. Why all these laws, God? What, what in the world with these laws? The first thing I would say to someone that has a problem with the Old Testament and these things specifically is I would invite them to understand the nature of the Bible. I think that these comments, these questions, these challenges that people pose is first and foremost a fundamental misunderstanding of the Bible, the nature of Scripture itself. It is not all prescriptive. I actually have extra water over here. (laughs) I needed some. It's not all prescriptive, right? Normally these are up here as a prop, sort of, you know, like, look at that, but I'm using it today. So they're not all prescriptive. Many would actually be challenged. They've never heard the fact that the Bible is a long narrative. It's a story of redemption. It begins in a garden. It ends in a city, right? This is a story of God's interaction with his people. And I would invite people in to say, listen, you can't brush away the Bible as though it was just a list of rules. Usually with a sort of sarcastic tone, people just kind of just sort of push away this idea. All the nuance, all the complexity... They just pretend the Bible is a list of rules, and if you begin that argument in that way, you will lose. We cannot pretend that the Scripture is all written like Proverbs. In fact, the Proverbs themselves have more nuance and more metaphor and more complexity than just a list of rules, right? I think it's the first thing that I would say. I'd also say that in general, if someone cannot get the idea that God is using the concepts of clean and unclean as a metaphor to teach about who he is, that they are being inconsistent with the way that they view the world in a million different ways. Don't let people roll their eyes 
at things like types and foreshadowing and symbolism and metaphor. Our world is full of them. In fact, some of the deepest meanings of life are communicated by, by indirect means. By indirect means. This is how the whole world works. The same people who will not accept the fact that the law was given as a metaphor or as a tutor to lead us to Christ, the same people who will say that will love the fact Right? That a story is told in an indirect way. They'll say like, what? God gave, why, why was God so weird? Why didn't he just tell us who he was instead of gave us all these laws? That doesn't make any sense, right? Ooh, J-Law's the mockingbird. Right? Like, they love this stuff. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Hunger Games, right? The whole thing is built on this idea that like, like Katniss is this symbol, this metaphor which is a metaphor for what it means to stand up against the man, right? All the great literature, the stuff you read in school, you could not get through Animal Farm without understanding that some of the best lessons in life are told and taught indirectly. God had told His people that He was holy. He told Adam and Eve, you can do all these things, just obey me. But in order to teach, if God employs metaphor and foreshadowing and type He is simply communicating in the way that everyone understands and accepts. So don't let people roll their eyes and say, if, you know, if this was true, God would just tell us. He would just, he doesn't need all these, God or whatever. That's just, it's just fundamentally not true. The other thing I'd want to say to them is that we need to read scripture as a whole. It needs to be interpreted in light of Jesus, right? We cannot take Leviticus and argue about it without understanding where is this leading. We need to tell people, you're right. That was burdensome and crazy. It was impossible for the Jewish people to live under. It seemed arbitrary in some sense, right? Where was all that leading? You could go with their question, right? Where was all that leading? You might even want to say to them, you know what? You're right. You're not alone. You're in good company if you wonder how in the world are these laws supposed to be fulfilled. In fact, it seems like Peter Peter wasn't quite sure what God was up to with them, especially when they got removed. He didn't know what to do. So what I would do is I would invite people in and say like, hey, you know what? The only way you're going to understand, the only way you're going to understand why God had all these laws in here is, is to understand Jesus and who he was and how he fulfilled them and where this was leading to. Let the complaints and the questions and the whining about these things lead people to understand who Jesus is and tell them, you're right. And you'll never understand these things because you're trying to understand them without getting Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, none of this makes any sense. It seems arbitrary. It seems burdensome. It seems like God is a taskmaster. But with Jesus, we're presented a better way. Jesus is the key to unlocking this entire thing. That's the entire message of the book of Hebrews, right? Is that Jesus is better. We just sang it this morning. Jesus is better. Now beyond that, Even if you establish that all these things have been fulfilled in Christ, here's a couple of reasons why God has given these laws. Why does it matter that you're clean or unclean? One, there's a practical value to it. There's a practical value to it. God is protecting his people to bring about the lineage, the line of David, so that Jesus could be born into the world to save it. God is protecting them. How many of us would read a command that says, do not touch dead people and say like, oh God, you're just such a taskmaster. Do you know why Ebola spreads through Western Africa at times? Because people have rituals where they touch the dead people and hang out with them. There's a sense in which God is protecting his people. There's a protective kind of antibiotic nature 
to a lot of the laws. It's not as though God is completely arbitrary. You look back and you say, like, there's some practical wisdom in this. The second and probably one of the main reasons that God gave these laws, I already mentioned it, they taught the people who God was. Why did God send them out of the camp? He was teaching them about his presence. I dwell in the camp, God says. I'm with you, and I cannot be where sin is. Therefore, you will have to go. He is teaching them about who he is. More than that, he's teaching them that he is holy, that he does not trifle with sin. It's not a minor thing. That his purity is blazing. That's what he's teaching people through these laws. This is what Tim Keller says about the ceremonial laws of clean and unclean. He says, the Jewish ceremonial laws of clean and unclean foods and garments and practices were God's visual aid to demonstrate that people are sinful, that they could not just come in to God's presence, that he was a holy God and that people needed to keep separate from sin and evil. In fact, the clean and unclean laws are really impossible to keep completely, which was also God's way of showing people that they could never cleanse themselves from sin. They needed someone, Jesus, to not only fulfill all the requirements of the law, but also to cleanse from sin all those who could not keep the law. God was teaching his people what he was like, and he was leading them somewhere. That's the last point. It points them to Jesus. And you see, right at this point, here's the tragedy. The tragedy of the Jewish nation is they took what God intended to humble them, and they turned it into a barrier of pride. They took the law which God gave intending to humble them and they turned it into a massive barrier of pride. They turned on its head completely the very gift God had given them, the very knowledge of His holiness. And it blinded them so that they could not see the final reason God gave these laws because Jesus was going to come and offer a better way. That Jesus was going to come into this messed up world of self-righteousness and He was going to speak a better word. He was going to give a better and a final rest. That's what Jesus came for. He came to answer the question, how could I be clean? The entire lesson that Peter is starting to wrestle with and understand is just how significantly Jesus fulfilled the law. Rise, kill, and eat, Peter. Jesus is a better way. That's what he's learning, and he's never seen it up to this point. It blows his mind. He cannot believe that Jesus has made even the Gentile dogs clean. You see, Jesus came saying a string of, you have heard it kind of statements. You have heard it said. He's reinterpreting and repositioning and fulfilling the law in himself. He uncovers the mystery of the dietary laws Way before this, years before this moment, Peter should have known. He was probably there. This is Mark chapter 7. Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he entered the house and left the people, the disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Peter, are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? And thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder, adultery, 
coveting and wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And all of these things come from within and they defile a person. You see, Jesus was far more revolutionary than we understand if we, if we discount the context of the time. Jesus challenged Jewish people's concepts of monotheism. He challenged their concepts of worship. He completely undid their dietary laws. He challenged their ideas of the Sabbath. And the greatest thing about Jesus, though, the greatest thing about Jesus, the message that is coming through clear, very loudly, the promise is that Jesus can make you clean. The thing that for thousands of years the Jewish people could not do. The entire law book's written, how can I be clean? And Jesus came to make men and women clean. Sinful, defiled men and women clean. This is Luke chapter 5. This is his ministry. Luke chapter 5, verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. When we saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. He charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more the report about him went abroad, and the great crowds gathered to him to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. You see what's happening here? It's a man with leprosy. He would have been put outside the camp. He should have been outside the camp. And any understanding rabbi would know you do not touch a man with leprosy. Can you see the disciples watching Jesus come up to to touch these people and thinking to themselves like, ah, ah, Jesus, you are going to become unclean. Stop! Stop letting the woman with the discharge for many years touch you. You're going to become unclean. But God is flipping the script. Jesus speaks a better word. He comes and He touches the man. He does not become unclean. The man becomes clean. You see what Jesus is doing? He's coming and He's saying, I can make you clean. That's His whole ministry. And Peter, in the midst of this vision, meeting Cornelius, a man who's a Gentile, and God is saying, welcome him. He's clean. This is a profound mystery of the gospel. And my prayer is like those in Luke 5.15, that many great crowds would gather to hear Jesus. They would bring their infirmities, their sensuality, their weakness, their brokenness. They would come to Jesus. You know why we offer Jesus? Because Jesus alone can make them clean. We cannot offer a program of cleanup we can't give them 12 steps. We can't say, read this book. It's a self-help great. It's a, it's a bestseller. We can offer them Jesus who alone says, be clean. And that is the message of the gospel. We don't have any other one to offer, period. That is, that is it. And Peter needed to know this deep down in his soul. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the living word, Jesus, who speaks rest to us. We want to know how to be pure before you. How can we stand before you in all of your righteousness and all of your holiness and all of your perfection and us here with our pride and our pretending and our pretension, us here with our lying and our disappointment and our brokenness, 
How can we stand before you? And to answer that, you've given your own son. And he fulfilled the law perfectly. And he reaches out and he cries out, come to me and be clean. God, I pray that we would run to Jesus. I pray that we'd call others to come to him. Those with infirmities and those who are discouraged and saddened and messed up. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the righteousness that you've given us, not of our own merit, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to come to the communion table today. As surely as you come down this aisle and take of bread and take of cup, if you were in Jesus Christ, you were clean. That's the message of the table. It reminds us of that truth. I want to encourage you not to come to this in a sort of, in a sort of hasty way. At the same time, don't come to this in a, in a sort of magical way. You need the Jesus of this table. That's what you need. And he is offering himself to you in this very day. Let this be a symbol. Let this be a foreshadowing, just a whisper of what he offers us. He offers us cleanliness to be made pure before God. At Midtown, the way you'll handle this, you'll come down and take bread and cup and bring it back with you to your row. So I'd invite you to go ahead and come down and, and take bread and take the cup. And those who want to help me pass out, I think, Jeff, you're on it. Awesome. Perfect. So please do come.